Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Dame Janet Finch talks about how academia and government can work together. Thank you very much, Vice Chancellor, for that very generous introduction. And it is a great privilege to be invited to deliver this lecture. I was very touched when uh, I first heard of the purpose of it and uh, um, actually now somewhat daunted that I've heard something about my predecessor lecturers, but I'll try to live up to that. Um, The topic of my lecture is linked to one of my roles, um, which is the uh, Council for Science and Technology, and I'll say something about that more specifically um, as we go along. But I want to start off with um, a question about the United States. Most of this lecture is not about the United States, it's about Britain. But my question is, in relation to this, uh, uh, the links between academics and public policy, why is Britain not more like the United States? Why am I asking that question? Well, when Barack Obama replaced George Bush as President of the United States, um, this actually signalled, as it always does, a major change in personnel in the upper echelons of the US government. Um, That change was particularly eye-catching because uh, there are some very big academic names brought into government by President Obama, much more... uh, Uh, starry names than I think under almost any other of his predecessors. There have been some spectacular appointments of leading scientists and other scholars into the Obama administration. Now, do you recognise this man? Not the man in the background. I mean, we recognise the man in the background. But the man in the foreground is... Stephen Chu, that's right. Actually, I wrote this lecture about six weeks ago, and I've, I was fairly confident that hardly anybody would know, but he's had a lot of exposure in the British press over the last few weeks. So, yeah, so that's Stephen Chu, uh, who is uh, now, uh, the, uh, since 2009, since January, when he was sworn in, um, was appointed as the Secretary of Energy by Obama. Um, Stephen Chu uh, was previously a professor at the University of California, professor of physics and molecular and cell biology, which is something that I can't get my mind around, how anybody could be professor of both those things, but he is. Nobel Prize winner in 1997 for research on cooling and trapping atoms with laser light, known widely as a public advocate of shifting away from fossil fuels, Uh, to contain global warming and so on. And that's been obviously um, uh, what he's been uh, discussing in the media very extensively over the last uh, week or so. Um, But the interesting thing was that Obama clearly appointed him because of his views and his expertise of a scientist. Uh, As a scientist, um, the president said, the future of our economy and national security is inextricably linked with one challenge, energy. Um, Stephen Chu has recently led the pursuit of alternative and renewable energies. He's uniquely suited to be our next Secretary of State. 
this sort of pattern of movement between universities and government uh, is routine in the United States. And it's a very obvious way in which the expertise which is generated in the academic environment feeds into government and policy making. The transfer of expertise takes place through the transfer of people. Um, now, this, of course, is within the context of a political system and responsibilities of government. Um, and quite clearly, when scientists go into government, there are political constraints, as Stephen Chu has obviously found um, in the uh, sort of discussions that he's been uh, making public this week. Um, I guess that academics going into and accepting those positions in the United States also accept those constraints. And they know that, that, that another thing that they know very clearly is that their tenure of office in those important positions in government is, uh, is, is time limited. It's limited to the time of a particular administration. When that administration ends, those who have come out of academia to fulfill these positions typically return back. So a spell in government is an understood and an accepted part of an academic career and in many ways a particular mark of academic distinction. You all know who this is. Um, Condoleezza Rice, former United States Secretary of State under the second Bush administration. Um, she served for eight years in total with George W. Bush as president because she was national security advisor in the first administration, secretary of state in the second. Um, her mainstream career is as professor of political science at Stanford, um, and she's returned to that position, as I understand it. Um, and since the mid-1980s, she's had a, a career pattern in which she has moved backwards and forwards between academia and government, um, sometime in a full-time capacity, sometime in part-time advisory capacities. She was indeed uh, a special security advisor during the presidency of George Bush Sr. Um, and was initially drawn into government as quite a young academic because of her particular academic expertise. She is, in fact, an academic expert on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And Bush Sr. is credited by introducing her to Mikhail Gorbachev uh, in the following way. She is the one who tells me everything I know about the Soviet Union. Might not have been the most diplomatic way of introducing her, but... Um, so this routine exchange of large numbers of people between universities and government, as happens in the United States, has no parallels in this country. Um, indeed, some of the British academics who were consulted in the study that I'm going to talk about later um, indicated that to do such a thing would be potentially damaging to their careers, to go and have a, a spell in government. So this healthy exchange um, between... Uh, academia and, uh, and government um, is a very, presents a very different picture in the United States from Britain. Um, it may be much to be admired, it is much to be admired, but actually I'm not going to be arguing that it's something we should try and replicate in this country because our tradition of government is different, as is our tradition of the civil service. And I think that's one of the key reasons why 
um, I would say that this is not something that could be straightforwardly replicated in this country, even though I have spoken to a number of senior politicians here who say we th this is what we think we should do. Um, but because we have a tradition of a permanent and independent civil service um, in which our top officials in the UK are career civil servants and the ethos of the British civil service is that um, the civil service is appointed to serve government, not a party in government, so that so our top officials will serve whoever is in power at a particular point in time who's been elected. Um, and I think there is such a fundamental difference between the political systems of the United States and this country that I don't think this particular way of um, getting more academic connection with public policy is one which would work in the UK. Um, unless we wanted to plan a revolution in how British government works, which is not my agenda, though quite clearly there's a revolution underway of a different sort at the moment, but in terms of this particular agenda, I don't really think that um, the routine circulation of people between academia and government is something that's going to happen in this country. We have to accept that we lose something as a result of that, um, so my question is, for the rest of the lecture, are there other ways in which we can get some of the gains of making expert, uh, academic expertise more routinely available in policymaking? Can we get some of those gains, more of those gains, in this country than we have hitherto experienced? So why is this a question worth asking? Well, I won't go on to that one yet. In what I've said about the contrast between the United States and the United Kingdom, I've, applied that, uh, I've implied that it is a good thing for academics to be more connected with policymaking. So I think I, to an audience like this, I need to justify this assumption. And I'm going to justify it under these three headings. Demand, effectiveness, and morality. <clears throat> so first of all, demand. Um, and I, I need to, uh, as part of this, tell you a little bit about the Council for Science and Technology um, because partly I know that there is a demand as a result of that. Um, there is definitely ministerial interest um, in, uh, in accessing more frequently and more directly academic policymaking. I put up a quote there from David Blunkett when he was Secretary of State for Education just to show that this is not an entirely new thing. It's something that ministers have been saying at least for some time. Um, but the particular reason why I uh, am conscious of the demand for closer working relationships is that uh, the current Secretary of State for um, the Department of Universities, Innovations and Skills, John Denham, actually asked the Council for Science and Technology to undertake um, this particular piece of work, which I'm going to talk about. So let me, let me say something quickly about what CST is. Um, the Prime Minister's top-level advisory body in science um, advising strategically on science and technology, technology policy issues. These are issues which cut across government, so although we have a special relationship with Dias, um, we actually do work which cuts across all government departments potentially, um, and it is uh, therefore 
a body which reports direct to the Prime Minister, and we do meet him um, from time to time. Uh, I'm the independent co-chair, and the other co-chair is ex officio, whoever is the government's chief scientific advisor of the day, and currently that's uh, Professor John Beddington. Um, we have another 14 members drawn from, very senior people drawn from a range of backgrounds, and <coughs> we run a work program in which we do about two or three projects a year, probably, um, uh, some of which are, most of which actually are defined by the council itself, and sometimes we respond to requests from ministers um, to undertake a piece of work. And we, the piece of work which ended in our report, which is entitled How Academia and Government Can Work Together, um, was commissioned by John Denham. And we published it in, uh, at the end of last year, at the end of late 2008. Um, so I know, and John Denham um, was very keen that we should do this. It was actually part of a series of reports that he commissioned on the future of higher education, the long-term future of higher education. And it is very interesting that this is one of the key questions that he wanted to, to think about in the context of thinking about what's higher education going to be like over the next 10 to 15 years? What sort of things will universities do? He wanted to ask this question about how government and academia can work more closely together in the future. So I'm pretty confident that there is some demand for this coming from within government. And we, that was certainly confirmed by a lot of people that we talked to in the process of doing the work. So my first, just to go back to the previous slide, my first justification for um, saying that this is an important question is that there is, there, from within government, there is a demand for a closer connection. My second... Um, rationale is effectiveness. <coughs> Evidence-based policy, which all governments say they're trying to do, um, does quite clearly require an input from research. Now, <clears throat> amongst many academics who I've talked to, there's a great deal of scepticism about this. Indeed, turning round the phrase to policy-based evidence um, is an accusation which many academics would... Uh, would uh, focus on uh, quite a lot of government policy that they've been close to. Um, but it's quite clear that policy based on inaccurate information or interpretation, uh, uh, in, incorrect interpretation um, of, what, of what the evidence says is going to risk wasting public money and getting things badly wrong. Um, in the end, of course, a decision, a political decision is political. It's not simply driven by evidence. But surely even political decisions must be better made if at least the re relevant evidence is known. In some cases, evidence is an absolutely vital tool in government policy making. I'm going to give you an illustration of this. From the management of the outbreak of the foot and mouth disease epidemic in 2000-2001, um, which is an interesting example of the very rapid deployment of academic expertise to help to manage a very rapidly developing crisis. Now, subsequently, there's been controversy about how well or how badly the crisis was dealt with, but one thing that everybody seems to agree on 
is that uh, it was absolutely crucial that there was a very serious input from academic, from leading academics of epidemiological modeling. That is to understand precisely how the disease might spread and that that was a key to containing the outbreak. The UK has several very well-established research groups with expertise in epidemiological modeling, several of whom who were involved intensively on a day-to-day -day basis, tracking the disease as it spread, making predictions for its future trajectory, all of which informed government about decisions that they had to take about the management of the disease. Now, those decisions included, as you may recall, the widespread slaughter of animals. That's a political, that it was in the end a political decision that that was the way of containing it. Um, and whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision can be debated, but what can't be debated is that, it, is that the impact of those modelers was extremely important in helping government to understand what would be the effects of doing that and what would be the effects of not doing it. That's an example of the importance of drawing on research evidence directly to inform government decision-making in a crisis. Major crises like that are relatively unusual, though they certainly occur. Um, more commonly, research can be used to inform policy-making in a more measured way, not just in crisis management. So David King, who was the previous government chief scientific advisor and who was my co-chair um, of the Council for Science and Technology when I first took up that role. Um, Sir David King is credited uh, with having persuaded Tony Blair, then the Prime Minister, that climate change is indeed a serious and an urgent problem. There was a real turning point. And David King, I believe, was totally instrumental in that turning point, in that was about changing Tony Blair's perception of climate change. He did it, I think, by consistently identifying evidence and putting that evidence in front of the Prime Minister in private, as well as drawing it to public attention. The result was that the UK started to take this very much more seriously in terms of our own policy quite suddenly in around 2003-04, and also put it as one of the top agenda items at the G8 summit when we held the presidency in 2005. Um, more generally, policy changes in this country related to climate change have often been really quite well supported by the evidence, by understanding it, and by following through its logic. So these are just two illustrations of how the use of academic expertise really can be absolutely critical in government policy making. So effectiveness is my second um, point of uh, justification. And my third one is morality. Um, point about morality is quite simply based on the proper use of taxpayers' money. Um, I've estimated, you can debate this with me if you like, that around 80% of all research in universities is funded by the taxpayer. Um, I reach that figure in the following manner. Um, the total research funding coming into universities in the last year that you can get HESA statistics, which is 2006-07 for a full year, um, the total research funding was £5 billion, uh, pounds, uh, delivered by both halves of the dual support system. 
Within the dual support system, uh, the QR research funding is fully funded by the taxpayer, and that accounts for about one-third of, um, of research funding. The majority of the rest coming through research grants and contracts um, comes from research councils, government departments, EU bodies, local government and health authorities, and all of that is taxpayers' money. The only research funding in my book which doesn't come from the taxpayer is that which comes from charities, which is about 15% of research funding, and that which comes from industry, which is about 6%. So in summary, of the £5 billion spent on research two years or two or three years ago, um, about £4 billion is taxpayers' money. And to my mind, that makes the moral case very simple. Um, those of us in universities who spend that money on research have the responsibility to use the output of that research for the public good. Um, and where that is relevant, and it isn't, of course, relevant in all research, but where it is relevant, that should include an input to policy. I think the argument here is rather parallel to that which has been pursued over the last decade about academics working with business. Um, both in relation to business and, I think, to public policy, there's a sense from people outside the university system that universities are places which, have, which are repositories of knowledge, which we are, but there's also a sense that that knowledge is locked in. And it's a knowledge which, if it stops being locked in and starts being shared in an effective manner, could be used very helpfully to support other interests, whether that be in business or in public policy. I think I'll just miss out that graph. Um, so that's my justification. What gets in the way at the moment in the UK of um, academics working more closely in the policy arena? Well, in the report that we did, we identified these four key factors which get in the way of more productive engagement between academics and policymakers in this country. Um, and they, just to summarise them in a pithy way, and then I'll talk a little bit around them, um, less than professional working relationships, people don't know how to work with each other, academics don't know how to work with officials, and officials don't know how to work with academics on the whole. Um, <coughs> ignorance on both sides of what good engagement could offer, a fair degree of mistrust between the parties and failure within the, each organisational structure, within the civil service on the one hand and within at universities in the other to value the relationship. And all of those factors apply in both directions, so to speak. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, but cutting across them all, I think I could summarise it by saying that they collectively amount to a gulf in culture, in understanding, and in knowledge between academics on the one hand and full-time officials and ministers on the other. And that gulf can be illustrated from both directions, and I'll try to do that now. Um, this is, the, uh, this is a uh, quotation from... Phil Willis, who is chair of the select committee that shadows Dias. Um, and he, I think, 
in, in some ways puts in a nutshell what the problem is that needs to be unpacked, which is he said, I accept that ministers have a right to ignore the evidence, provided they make it clear why they are taking a decision for political, social and other reasons. And on the one hand, that clarity is often not there, either in the minds of ministers. On the other hand, it, is, um, the, the, it breeds suspicion um, on the part of academics because we all think that they, either, that they, they, they know the evidence, but they ignore it. Um, and I'm going to say a little bit about disillusionment on both sides. First of all, um, academic disillusionment. In the work that we did for this report, uh, it came through very clearly that academics get disillusioned when we see research evidence being produced and then ignored by ministers. There's lots of examples that people will quote of that, of actually doing a piece of work um, and, then, um, and then finding that, that, that uh, it got sunk without trace or a civil servant was to told to put it in the, in the back of the filing cabinet because it wasn't politically convenient. Many academics who work with government can produce those stories. Um, I saw one recently, actually a, a press report of um, Professor Roberts from York, who's an expert in marine conservation, who has analysed uh, the record of government decision-making on fishing quotas um, across the whole of the EU in the past 20 years. And he found that across the whole of the EU, ministers had overruled scientific advice on 80% of occasions, um, which is, is pretty dispiriting if you're one of the academics who produced that advice. Now, you know, it may be that we have to actually um, accept that we academics are sometimes naive about what we expect to happen with the great work that we produce, um, and if it's going into a political context, we do need to understand that this happens, that ministers may decide to ignore the advice for political reasons. That has to be understood, that that's what politics is about. However, there's no doubt that ministers themselves and officials who support them can fuel this uh, sense of disillusionment and suspicion by uh, their lack of openness about what's really political and what the evidence does actually show. The disillusionment works in the other direction. And again, we found this in the work that we did um, for, uh, for the CST report. Um, we found a number of instances where we spoke to policymakers, and they said the stories that they tell are something like this. We commissioned this work from these academics, um, and we were very disappointed in the outcome. And variously, this is, the work was delivered far too late. They don't understand the sort of timetables we have to work on. Um, they answered the wrong question. It wasn't what we originally asked them to do. They did something different, and they didn't tell us what we needed to know. Um, and their approach was very unprofessional. They don't answer the phone. Um, they don't reply to your emails quickly enough. Um, they, don't, they, they, just, they just don't know how to operate professionally. And academics were, were, were actually very regularly compared unfavorably with consultancy firms who are deemed to deliver what is requested on time, even though it costs an enormous amount of money more. 
um, and actually it was quite interesting that uh, one of the uh, one of the CST secretariat then who's no longer with us who's moved on to an, another role in the civil service had actually come into the civil service from a, one of the major consultancy firms and he had actually been involved in doing this work from government and an- another of the young consultants on um, on, on this report as actually somebody who'd gone from an academic post into the consultancy firm. And as an academic, he had actually tried to get work, policy work, from, uh, policy research from government department unsuccessfully. And as soon as he um, had the uh, label PricewaterhouseCooper or Ernst & Young or whatever it was, uh, he said policymakers are falling over themselves to ask them to do work at four times the price he could have charged as an academic. So, I mean, we, we have a problem here. There is a perceived problem um, of academics not being able to do what, not understanding the policy context and not being able to do the sort of work that policymakers need. Now, that, the fault, some of the faults for that may lie with us, do lie with us. On the other hand, we also found that officials are not always clear when they are commissioning work what they want, and they don't necessarily keep in touch with researchers as the work progresses. They don't have the skills often to ask the right questions. They got the wrong answer because they didn't ask the right question, because they don't have the skills to know what research, what answers research can provide and what it cannot And then sometimes when they get the answers to the questions that they did ask, they don't actually know how to interpret the answers. So there is is a whole kind of spider's web of issues here, um, which we felt that um, needed to be disentangled in that very much that sort of nitty-gritty of the face-to-face relationship. We also thought that policymakers' disillusionment was fueled to an extent by not understanding enough about the context in which we academics operate. And that includes not understanding enough enough about the supreme significance of reputation, academic reputation. So they may not understand that it is of absolutely fundamental significance to an academic researcher how she or he is viewed by her peers. Those peer relationships are the ones that academics have to maintain and nurture. Being too close to government can be seen by one's peers as a major risk to reputation. And even if it isn't intrinsically seen as such a risk, um, the danger of, of one's work being taken and then misrepresented or used inappropriately or sidelined is perceived by many of us as a huge potential risk to our reputation and one which we don't want to take um, because we, uh, we value the uh, views of our peers and the reputational damage that can be done to us has huge consequences for our careers. Now, that's how many academics see it. I think that is certainly sometimes overstated. Those dangers are overstated. Um, But they are fueled by incidents which get lots of publicity. So you probably recall a recent one, which was a very public dispute between Professor David Nutt um, and the Home Secretary. Professor David Nutt um, is the chair, or I think he still is the chair, actually, of the government's advisory council on the misuse of drugs. And he wrote an editorial in a peer-reviewed academic journal, the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology, 
in which he compared the risks associated with drugs such as ecstasy with other activities which are legal but dangerous. Um, and I do believe that horse riding was one of those that he mentioned as much quoted in the press. Um, the, it, I, it, it, was, it, was a, uh, it, it was an editorial about risk, about the concept of risk in drug use. Um, but the Home Secretary, presumably um, advised by political special advisers on this occasion, I suspect, and not by civil servants, um, took immediate and public exception to this. And uh, eventually, after a public spat in the media, Professor Nutt offered a public apology, um, though he did actually also quietly give a series of interviews clarifying his position, um, I'm pleased to say. Um, and, and that's the sort of incident which may actually get blown up out of all proportion. I don't know. I can't comment on that incident. I only know what I've read about it. Um, but that's the sort of thing that academics remember. That will be remembered for years by academics as something which is a cautionary tale um, of what happens if you get too close to government and people don't want to. Now, obviously, I can't comment on that particular case, but any public dispute of that type, however unjustified, is bound to deter academics from risking their reputations by becoming involved in policy issues. Um, in truth, of course, we have to accept that the media is a very important intervening variable in all this. Um, the Daily Telegraph... Um, was the culprit, as it were, on this occasion, particular occasion. That story was run as an exclusive um, in the Telegraph. Uh, and without that, I doubt very much whether the Home Secretary would have picked up that issue directly from an academic journal and certainly would not have felt that she had to respond to it, I suspect. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, this is a little bit more about that same thing. So we're, we're making recommendations about more use of academics in, um, in advisory committees in government and also the capacity of universities to... Uh, sorry, this is the capacity. I'm sorry, this is my second one. Building capacity to ensure more productive engagement. So this is, under this heading, we've put um, the greater use of uh, scientific <coughs> advisory committees by government and the greater use of, 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 a, of a wider range of academics within those. Um, we also do believe that universities need to be able to act more like the consultancy companies do in this arena. We've learned how to do that in terms of our interface with business over the last decade. We need to learn the parallel lessons of how to deal with working in the policy environment um, uh, on the same sort of basis. I, there are definitely some academics who already do this, you know, and, and I, I, I think I know that some of them um, are members of this university. But I'm ta we're talking about a much more widespread engagement, so more people knowing how to operate on what, what civil service perceives to be a professional basis from their angle, um, which is what they find in consultancy companies often don't find with academics. Um, and our third set of recommendations is about rating, valuing, and rewarding the engagement. Um, and here, again, it's on both sides. Um, and uh, we, we heard the message loud and clear that the research assessment exercise is a disincentive because um, the... Uh, uh, act, sort of activity that I'm talking about is not rewarded through this means. 
Um, the uh, development of the research excellence framework, I believe, will uh, attempt to take this much more seriously. Um, and uh, I, I believe that there's a will to do that from within government and Hefke, who have been very supportive of these recommendations. Um, but some other things apply within the civil service as well, which I won't uh, talk about in detail now. So we've made recommendations under these three headings for both government and academia, and these are designed to try to encourage the sort of cultural change. Um, let me go back to the summary. Oh, ah, wrong way, sorry. Um, that way. Those three. Um, the, the, these, these are the sorts of things which we're recommending, which would help to bridge the gulf that I was talking about, the cultural gulf, ensure a more professional approach to engagement on both sides, and ensure that the type of engagement um, that takes place is both more productive uh, in policy terms, but also um, in, is more career-enhancing for everybody involved. I'm going to end with some examples of one way in which I believe our objectives can be taken forward um, in a very positive way. And this is um, the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council's Placement Fellowship Scheme. I don't know whether you know about this. If you don't, you should. Um, it's an excellent scheme. Um, it offers opportunities for short-term secondments of academics into government and vice versa. Um, the scheme provides placements for between three months and 12 months, which are jointly funded by the ESRC and the sponsoring organization within government. The scheme is designed to enable government to access research which is informed by evidence that's relevant to policy. So an academic's going in and helping this to happen. Um, and obviously encouraging greater knowledge transfer thereby. It also is designed to enable greater understanding to be built on both sides and networks to be constructed. And obviously it provides a different sort of career development opportunity. Um, I've uh, got permission from four people who've been involved in this scheme to say something about their experiences. They've been very kind and allowed me to do that this evening. So I'll just mention each of them briefly and perhaps say more about one or two. Um, so Professor Fergus Lyon um, is a professor in Middlesex University Business School. He spent six months in 2007 with a secondment in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, which is part of the Cabinet Office. Um, he joined a team working on innovation in health services, particularly primary care, um, and, in, and worked on incentives for general practitioners to innovate in response of changing demands and needs of patients. Um, the finding of his work fed into the DARSI review of the National Health Service, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, and the secondment was in 2007, but he tells me that he's now working on an ongoing basis with the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit to develop more projects on which they can collaborate. Um, Alex Morton is a lecturer, so it can be at all levels, at academic levels, is a lecturer in operational research at the LSE. 
Um, he spent six months in 2008 working with the National Audit Office value for money team. He asked me to say, if I ever mentioned him, that the National Audit Office is not part of government, it's a scrutiny body which reports directly to Parliament. But it, for this purpose, it comes to the same thing. Um, and he worked with that team on a number of different studies and is now in regular contact with them. Um, uh, and they are contacting him to seek his advice on various studies. Philip Cowley, who some of you may know, um, uh, well-known political scientist, professor of parliamentary government at Nottingham. I'm saying less about this because his, his secondment is current. Um, he's seconded to the government social research unit, which is actually part of the Treasury and doing some very interesting work, um, which I'm sure will come back out into the academic arena. <coughs> and finally, um, oops, secondment in the other direction. Um, Stella Maskrenras Kays is a civil servant who's done the reverse secondment. Um, she's actually a civil servant in, in Dias uh, and was the first civil servant to uh, be seconded under this ESRC Placement Fellowship Award. Um, she was jointly sponsored by Dias and uh, the uh, Department for Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform. Um, she undertook a one-year secondment in 2008 um, in the Centre for Research in Ethnic Minority Entrepreneurship at De Montfort University in Leicester. Um, she did this as an individual project and did research on graduate entrepreneur entrepreneurship amongst minority ethnic graduates in the UK, including potential international links formed. Um, her work examined the barriers and facilitating factors to more graduate um, entrepreneurship amongst minority, minority ethnic graduates. Um, she's back in Dias now. Um, she produced a report which is to be used within government, but she tells me that she's actually um, now being asked to give presentations to a very wide range of bodies, both within the university sector, regional development agencies, bankers, minority ethnic groups of various sorts. Um, she had previously had an academic career. She's got a PhD in so social anthropology. Um, so it was relatively easy for her to make that transition on a one-year basis. But nonetheless, it really demonstrates what can be done. And I'm not here as an apologist for the ESRC. I've got no current connection with the ESRC. But I think it's worth saying that there are, if, if one is advocating change, sometimes change which, see, which seems rather radical and difficult to achieve, it's always useful to be able to point to um, things which are happening now, which give a platform for that change to occur. So, finally, um, do I think that anything's going to happen to the report that we've made? Well, um, actually I do. Um, I do know that the discussions on the research excellence framework are very much taking our report into account. Um, we launched the report in February with a launch event where the Secretary of State, John Denham, who had commissioned it, spoke and announced that he had commissioned a former civil servant on a consultancy basis to produce an implementation plan for our report, which delighted me. Um, I don't think the change will be dramatic, 
Um, and, and, and obviously, impending general elections and so on get in the way of all these things. Though I think this is not a party political issue. We've had some interesting um, indications that the opposition parties that think this is, uh, this is a direction which they would be you know, quite interested in as well. So I sense the possibility of a change in the climate of opinion on all sides in favour of making progress. Um, which is why I um, am willing to, I think, take the, um, if I go right back to my title, Academics and Public Policy, I put a question mark, a new alignment. I'll tentatively remove the question mark from that and say that I think within the foreseeable future, I can see a new alignment emerging. Thank you very much. <laughs>